All right. Welcome back to From A to Arbitration. And hey, I've got uh I've got Mr. Leith back in here today. He's off of probation. He's uh <laughs> he's come back uh like the prodigal son. And uh, I welcomed him back with open arms into the studio. Uh, I've forgotten what he looks like. Uh, so it's good to have JB back in here. He's going to go over quite a, quite a few things. Uh, he's going to go over the workout workload report. Uh, he's going to go over the grievance steps, informal, formal B team, kind of the time limits, because I had some CCAs reach out about that. And so uh, any kind of time a CCA steward reaches out to me and needs help, I'm going to put that at the forefront. So, And then he's also going to finally cover the CCAs doing rural care work. That's a huge topic going on right now. And so he's going to get uh, into that and cover that fully. He's an expert at that. Uh, so he... <laughs> So <laughs> I can't wait to hear what he's got to say about that. But I'm going to address just a few things before he gets on and gets started. Uh, hopefully y'all made it through the episode last week. That was a marathon. Uh, that was a big one. So uh, I had quite a few people comment on it. Um, that's a, That was a big episode. So hopefully y'all made it through that thing okay. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting, wasn't it? That episode had quite a few comments on that thing. But that's neither here nor there. Now, what are we going to talk about today? Have y'all ever played cards? Do y'all ever play cards? Whatever kind. It could be go fish, spades, blackjack. What's other kind of card games? Hearts. Hearts. Poker, Uno. Any kind of card game. How easy would it be if the person you were playing against had to play with their hand face up? If you could see their entire hand while you're playing cards, how easy would that make it? I had an individual send me an email or a message, and he was talking about an investigative interview. And I'm going to read it to you because it's hysterical. And so he sends me this message, and so basically what he did is made management play with the cards face up. He can see their entire hand in the investigative interview. So it's funny. I'm going to read it to you because I, when he sent it to me, I thought it was, it was quite funny. But this is how you do as a shop steward in the investigative interview to protect your people. Uh, this is when you talk about the agent going in. This is the, the carrier's day in court, right? So day in court means what? I've got my attorney with me. It's my day in court. You're not going to your day in court without an attorney, right? Well, your attorney is your shop steward. And so when the just cause principles talks about was a thorough investigation completed, and in that it talks about my day in court, well, my attorney's in there with me in my day in court, and here's the attorney. Here's what the attorney did in this day in court, and it's hysterical because he just he made management put their entire cards on the table face up. Here's what he said. We had a hit squad come down from district to assist local management with time and attendance issues. They did attendance reviews for the entire office on Monday and started giving PDIs on Tuesday. Now, for those new students, PDIs are predisciplinary interviews. PDIs on Tuesday and today. 
So they came in, they gave attendance reviews on Monday and started giving official uh, and uh, investigative interviews on Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> About 25 of them were given. We haven't had attendance reviews in over five years, and I made sure to make that point during every PDI. Very good. They gave reviews on a Monday and are ready to give discipline shortly after. How do they expect carriers to improve on any possible deficiencies in two days? I agree. I also asked them to define regular in attendance, like you said in the podcast. They said three days during a quarter is postal policy is considered a violation. I asked them in several of the PDIs to provide that to me in writing, and they haven't yet. You know why? Because there's no such thing. There's no such postal policy that says three days in a quarter. But he's got it on record now in the investigative interview that management is basing this investigation on some postal policy that requires three days during a quarter. And he wants that postal policy. That's making management play cards with their cards face up. All right. They also had one of the hit squad members sit in on the PDI to observe management conduct the PDI. A couple of times, the district guy instructed the local supervisor on asking the questions and was assisting on handing out citations from the ELM. I know how I'm going to attack the discipline that's about to follow. I was just looking for any other advice you may have, especially for the gentleman sitting in on the PDI. I had an alternate Stuart sit in with me so he could corroborate any of the issues I'm going to raise in my contentions. So that's a great job by the shop steward. Asking management to define regular attendance, making sure that in the investigative interview he talks about that there's been no attendance reviews given in the last five years. All of these things are critical, not for management. They're going to discipline regardless. It's for us. When we get the discipline, we're going to look at that investigative interview. When we're making our contentions at informal, formal, B team, when we take it to arbitration, those things are on the record. So he has basically made management play their their hand face up. That's an expert's way of doing things in the investigative interview. Do not be a silent observer. Participate. Help out the carrier. Having them say that they have a policy of three days and a quarter is devastating to management's position. It's devastating. There is no such thing. First off, if you're going to say it's a postal policy, It's a policy. Is it a district policy? Is it a national policy? Is it an installation policy? Is it a station policy? I've never heard of that policy. So when he says, show me the policy, that's money. If it's a policy, where is it located in my station? When has it ever been told to the letter carriers? Has this policy been addressed in a stand-up talk? Is this policy handed out in your return to work letters? How do the carrier know about this said policy? Because if there's a rule, right, if we're going based off of a rule, three days and a quarter, surely the carrier knows about the rule, and he has to know about the consequences for not obeying the rule. That would be a contention of mine. So if here's some mysterious policy showing up, when were the carriers ever notified of this attendance policy? So dude has devastated management when he asked that question, And they answered that. 
that's devastating. So to that gentleman, fantastic job of being the agent, being the attorney in that investigative interview. When you ask management, can you define what regular attendance is? None of them can do that. There is no such thing. Every answer will be different. We're always behind the eight ball as far as attendance-related discipline because they have never relayed to us what it is to be regular in attendance. So he took over. He did a fantastic job. Uh, it's made it so much easier now going forward because anything said now on this discipline about any kind of language or anything like that, you better have a district policy or some form of policy on this discipline because you stated in the II is a policy. I need to see this policy. It reminds me one time JB had this removal. And looking at it at first blush, it was pretty bad. And they were going after, it was out of state. They sent him in to do a, a, a formal step A out of state. He was an outside steward. So they, they appoint him as the informal and formal A steward. And what it was was management was going after another steward in formal A. It was obvious that they were lying. We just had to catch them lying. And so he's requesting all this documentation. But he does that very thing to this supervisor he's meeting with. He's just jotting down notes. And so when he starts getting into this removal, they're accusing her of falsifying documentation for financial gain. So they're saying that she's basically falsifying these grievances to gain money off of them, uh, which was completely untrue. So how he catches them is they've not seen these grievances yet. They've not even discussed these grievances. They have no idea what these grievances are concerning as far as a dollar amount. But somehow the supervisor knows the amount that's on these grievances. The only way he could have done that is to have broken into the union's office and looked through these case files. And so he's telling this dollar amount that was impossible for him to know because, like I said, they've not met on these grievances. He has no idea the grievances are coming. They're on an extension. So he writes down that the total dollar amount of these grievances. So when JB's talking to him, the guy says, uh, yeah, it's for this amount of money, and JB knows he's lying. He's like, oh, okay. Well. And so how do you know that? Well, because you know, at the meeting, I take very good notes. I take very good notes, and I remember that dollar amount. And so JB, he never looks up. He's right, and he said, that's great. He said, if you don't mind, go on and get those notes for me. And so the guy just looks up. He says, excuse me? He's like, yeah, if you don't mind while I'm writing this down, if you if you just go on and get those notes for me so that I can see them. Well, the guy can't get notes because he li he's lying about it. That's holding management accountable to the things that they say. Just like this gentleman in this investigative interview. It's a postal policy. Oh, okay. Well, if you don't mind, go on and get that policy for me. Here's what you have to remember when you're dealing with management at every level. They lie. They lie all the time. I've always said they would rather climb a tree to tell a lie than stand on the ground to tell the truth. It's inherent in their position to lie. Always remember that at every level when you're dealing with management. They lie. 
in this investigative interview. The guy just lied. It's a postal policy. Okay, go get it for me. When JB's meeting with this guy, I take very good notes. I bet you do. I'd like to see them. Always hold them accountable for the things that they say. But that's making management play cards with their hand face up. So I got another thing and then I'll be done. I just thought that that was pretty interesting, this guy, how he dismantled management in that investigative interview. Here's another thing that came up, and I thought that this was hysterical. But this shows you management and how they are. It's on a a site called Postmasters and Managers of America, and I think somebody put this up on Facebook, and the answers are hysterical. And I, and I, I don't know if this guy is trolling management on this site. I think I heard somebody say that this guy is actually a carrier that got on there and he's trolling management. But here's the the question and the answers. He says, it's on postmasters and managers of America. He says, how do I establish my dominance in my office? No one seems to respect me. Any suggestions? And so here's what they say. Here's one guy. He's pretty good. Communication. Have a stand-up talk and share with your employees your expectations. Treat everyone with dignity and respect. I have found that being honest with your employees goes a long way. That's a great answer from a manager. Here's another one. Corrective action. (laughs) That's the first thing he says. Now, this guy's the question is, how do I establish my dominance in my office? No one seems to respect me. This guy says, corrective action. Don't have to be a bull in a china shop. Just have a service talk. Lay out your expectations and hold them to the rules and regulations. Out of uniform, incorrect shoes, earbuds, there are a ton of things you can do. Go after the big mouth, and the rest usually will fall in line. Here's another one. Just start holding people to written standards. Most employees don't even know what they are. Hand out some discipline with infractions, and they will begin to respect you. That's what they think about you. Here's another one. If you're a city delivery office, walk with carriers. Fix their problems. If you don't know any answers, tell them you'll find out. Then do the research to find the answer. Let them know their safety at work is your priority too. Always tell them the truth. Good luck. Then he comes back. The problem is the union steward basically runs the office and makes all the decisions. Most days I feel like he should be the postmaster. This guy answers, that's because they have earned that respect. That didn't happen overnight. If you have a customer come at one of your employees, then back the employee 100% and watch that trust and respect build. But if you want to dominate grown adults, you will always be the laughing stock. That's a good answer from a manager. Here's another one. What decisions is he making? Another one. You have to stop this immediately. Take him aside and have a very frank conversation about his behavior. When others see you talk to him, they will fall in line. So, I thought that was hysterical because when I talked to y'all that time about you're nothing and everything, that management thinks you're nothing, they consider you to be nothing. Here's a man who said he wants to dominate the city letter carrier, and you've got a bunch of fools standing in line to tell him how to do that. They think of us as nothing. They think of us as nothing. You've got managers saying you want to earn their respect, discipline them. Fire them. They don't know the rules. Here's my thing. 
We deal with rules. Management has no idea what the contract is. No idea. Very few have ever dealt with it. So if that's the path you want to take, if you want to challenge us to follow in the rules, then let's get it on. I've got the JCAM, M41, M39, and a thousand other step fours. If that's the way y'all want to handle business, we can do that. I go with the gentleman that said treat them with respect and, and be truthful to them. Do that and you'll learn their respect. I agree with that. You treat us like human beings and we'll respect you. I have no problem with that. But you want to come in, you think that you're going to discipline us, just like that clown said, follow them every day, jump on some of the carriers and others will fall in line. You got a long career ahead of you. But I just thought that that was funny, that guy, I think he was trolling them to go on there and said, I want to dominate my stations. <laughs> you do have those that are like that. But anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there. JB's about ready to come up here. He's got a lot of stuff to talk about. He's got a handful of stuff over there, man. I'm impressed with you, brother. I appreciate you coming. <laughs> I appreciate you coming in here and doing your thing. Couldn't wait to get back. I know it. It's been about six months, man. I I thought they didn't put the chains on you, put the clamps on. No? No, Okay. All right. Well, all right, everybody. Here's JB. He's going to come on and do his thing. Uh, next week, I'm going to get back into the T-Rap in the next few weeks because it's September 1. It's back on, right? So, I'm going to get back into a little bit of the T-Rap. I got a, a good friend of mine that's writing some kind of memo. I'm going to go over it. And then I've got another, uh, the guy sent me another slideshow. We'll go over those things and make sure that we're ready for the T-Rap. All right? It's here. It's on us. And so we're going to get everybody ready. Uh, we talked about the hour office time. That's rampant. I think we may have gotten our first discipline off of that. Uh, somebody sent me. We're going to look at that, and I may uh, talk about that, and uh, we're going to address those things. But anyway, JB's up next week, getting back into T-Rap, all right? So I'll see you all in a bit. Well, we're back. I'm not sure if it was by popular demand, but we are back in studio. Uh, Appreciate Corey giving me a, a nice warm welcome. A hard time, but a warm welcome. I'm like all of you out there. I listen every week. While I'm delivering my route, checking out the latest episode, and I hear somewhere during that episode, JB's going to be here next week. And I keep laughing to myself because I'm uh, uh, situations have been just coming up left and right. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I do enjoy coming. I do enjoy speaking. Uh, I've told you before, it's, it's kind of uh, different. It's uncomfortable at times speaking to an invisible audience. But nevertheless, uh, like I've told you all in every episode, if there's 50 of y'all listening and 49 of y'all are fluent in the subject matter that we're discussing, but there's that one individual that is listening in that is unaware of the provisions that we're talking about that can gain that knowledge, that can better represent his brothers and sisters in his uh, bargaining unit, his station, then then it's worth it. It's 100% worth it. Uh, I'm not an expert in anything. Uh, I hear Corey make the, the remarks about being an expert, but... Um, I wish I was an expert, um, but I'm far from it. I've learned a lot. I've dealt with a lot uh, with an installation of 16 stations. Uh, a lot of different subject matters have come across my table in the matter of five years. It's just uh, 
by simple arithmetic, those things are going to come forward. Some are reoccurring, but there's that different topic from here to there. So I have uh, had the privilege of being able to deal with a lot of those things. But nevertheless, I'm glad to be here. If anybody can ever gain something, that's what this is about to me. It's about helping somebody better be a representative of our brothers and sisters. We need more people. We need more educated stewards, formula reps, people getting involved, union activists, whatever it may be that you could do for our organized group uh, to better represent is beneficial. It'll never be viewed as unbeneficial by me. I I have been gone. Forgive me. Uh, I got a little boy that is a a tenacious little baseball player. He finished up his regular season. Didn't uh, really see him making the All-Stars as a 7-year-old. It's 7- and 8-year-old. But out of the 12 boys, uh, there was only three 7-year-olds that made the team, and he was selected. So I was very, very proud of him. Uh, That that also uh, required some traveling. Had some baseball tournaments, so was gone for that. And another reason I was gone, I had some vacation sprinkled in there. But one of the things I do want to mention while I'm on here, and and I'm going to get Corey to earmark uh, these topics that we're discussing today because uh, this beginning part's more of an editorial, just catching up with you uh, individuals. But then once we get into the subject matters, he'll be able to notate that. And that way, if you're just needing to go directly to that moment, you'll be able to go straight to that time and listen into that subject at hand. But um, very proud to finally have graduated along with my classmates of uh, the NEL Leadership Academy, class 25. like to say uh, congratulations to all my brothers and sisters. If you got the latest postal record, you'll be able to flip inside and you'll see our picture there. You'll also see the names of these individuals. And I would like to say I couldn't be more proud of the individuals that I got to know got to become friends with, got to learn more about. And we started in 2020, right prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic cut us off in between weeks two and three. I can't tell you, you know, we talk about growth, and and growth is hard to see from yesterday to today. But the amount of growth that these individuals displayed Prior to the pandemic in March of 2020, when we last saw each other, to coming back in April and then finally graduating in June, I I was blown away. I was blown away at the things that they have taken on, the things that they have progressed in their branch, their vocabulary, their effective public speaking, their knowledge, and it left me in awe of who am I to be sitting here with these individuals. I really felt blessed to have gotten to know them. And it really brings you together in a way that's undescribable. And Leadership Academy to me is is the unknown, and it'll stay the unknown for anybody that inquires to me what it's about. It's something that you have to experience and develop and, and go through. But I couldn't be more proud of the friends and the family that I would call them over the course of those three weeks and a half and two years to graduate <laughs> uh, with the longest longest group of individuals that it ever took to uh, finish Leadership Academy. But we came back and, and we pursued, and it was, it was definitely gratifying to see those individuals and the growth that they have had and for the, the things that they're doing for their union. Very proud of them. I have a, a re, just an unending 
resource available to me from these individuals. So thank y'all. I do love each and every one of you. If there's anything that I could ever do for those individuals, I would be at the forefront for them. So the Leadership Academy, thank you. If anybody's ever attended a training that National puts on, whether it was advanced formal A or uh, officers training or OWCP or any event like that, that you know that National is second to none when it comes to putting together training. And the Leadership Academy was just that. And what it has really instilled in me is I didn't know what I was going into, but when I left, what it told me is that we have to be union activists. We have to be mentoring individuals. We have to be those individuals that I always say we spill blood in the same mud with, that we can't give up on that individual that takes a negative outlook towards our union, that we constantly got to bring them together and let them know that why we're on the union, why we're involved in our union, what the union is doing for us. And so I couldn't be more proud uh, to finally graduate and take that knowledge with me and to continue to grow and help individuals be more union activists and hopefully that spreads like wildfire. The National Convention. I'd like to say thank you, thank you, thank you to every individual that I got the opportunity to meet at the National Convention. A lot of y'all came up to meet Corey, um, and, and he wasn't there uh, to promote or to um, grandstand. It's nice to see individuals out there that are wanting to become better wanting to become more knowledgeable and every time he he would also include me in the introduction and getting to meet y'all and to see so many people come from so many different areas that have a fire ignited in them had passion in their eyes had want and desire from individuals that you don't and so many of us take for granted our resources I have a huge branch. I have I have Corey Walton that I've known for over six years at my disposal to be able to talk to, to be able to uh, bounce ideas off of from other individuals that are in my branch, from stewards that I have that I have the utmost respect for that are every bit as knowledgeable or more knowledgeable than I do. I have resources and outlets to reach out to, but you individuals out there that don't have that, that are miles away from training, that are miles away from anybody's assistance to help you, how great it was to see you and to be able to shake your hand and thank somebody like me. I was very, very humbled, and if there's anything that I could ever do, I'd be more than happy to assist in any way. I know Corey sends me things all the time, and I send him back ideas or contentions or uh, reports, anything that I could do. But I was definitely in awe to be there to meet you individuals. It meant a tremendous amount to him. It meant a tremendous amount to me, and I can't thank you guys enough. It was very, very humbling to meet y'all. Also, very humbling is to be at the National Convention. That was the first time that I was able to go. Um, never experienced a national convention before. Was supposed to have gone to Hawaii, but I had a wonderful time. I had no idea what to expect. I remember walking through the convention center, and I just came up the escalator from where our hotel was, and I'm passing by those breakout rooms. If you were there, you know what I'm talking about. It was on the third floor, like rooms 375, E, D, and C, and I peeked my head in the first one, and I'm like, Wow. This is huge. Got the big screens up front. Just got rows and rows of chairs. 
And I'm like, man, this is awesome. This is this is the the convention room. And so I see people still walking past these rooms, and I look at the signs, and it you know it gives direction to go to the convention area. And I'm like, wow, okay, well, I'm not even in the right place. But when I walked through that room for the first time, and I saw the enormous area where all our brothers and sisters convened to one one location and the mass amount of people. And from my understanding, that was just a, a portion of what is normally at a convention. I couldn't believe it. I was really, really humbled and blown away from an individual that grew up in the South, that didn't grow up in a union family, that didn't have any understanding or knowledge about unions. I live in a right to hire fire state. So to be in fellowship with so many individuals, while we may all see things through different eyes, we may hear things differently, but one thing's for sure, and one thing that I truly am fortunate for and feel truly blessed is to have a, an organized front, to be a part of something that is on the forefront for the letter carrier, to try to better our wages, our benefits, our working conditions, and that's what this is all about to me. While I'm down here on the workroom floor and battling management, local management, upper management, whoever it may be, I am appreciative that we have a craft that is represented at the table that will help benefit us moving forward in contract negotiations. Uh, to see individuals from the four states of the, uh, of the country coming together under one roof, it was humbling. And it, it is just such an awe to be in presence with like-minded individuals. So I got to meet everybody. Thank y'all very much for coming up. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I'll tell Corey thank you all the time for allowing me to come on here. I, I bitch and complain sometimes about coming, but nevertheless, at the end of the day, I know on the ride over here that if this is going to help one person, it is very, very beneficial. Corey always has stories. He always likes to tell stories. He always talks about me. I've had a lot of people ask me before, is he really like how he says he is on the podcast? Is that how he comes off? Is that how he carries himself? And I can tell you with 100% positive assurance, what he's telling you and how he tells you he handles it is exactly how he handles it. There's no in-between. He's got probably the most integrity of an individual I've seen. He's not going to do anything uh, disingenuous or, or to jeopardize any situation. That's one thing that we've always talked about is when we walk through the door, we have the most integrity. And when we walk out that door, we have the most integrity. But I've been in enough meetings with Corey. I know he's about that business. He's about that action. We go in there most of the time in labor management meetings to listen and in hopes that it doesn't go south, but in the event it goes south, we can get south. But I've heard a lot of people have asked me, you know, tell me about Corey. And I didn't really, you know, there, I, I've got six years, seven years worth of stories, but we've had some great uh, arbitrations. We've had some great labor management meetings. And we've, when I say we've had a lot of fun, you know, holding management accountable is a lot of fun. That individual a minute ago that says, you know, well, my steward runs the station. I don't want to run a station. And a shop steward shouldn't want to run a station. If you want to run a station, then get into management and run it to the best of your ability. I just want my station ran in accordance. I want my station to be ran in accordance with the handbooks and manuals. 
that we're not going to try to attempt to run over letter carriers in the process of doing it. That's all I want. I don't want to run it. I just want you to run it correctly. But as I was thinking about me and Corey, I, I reflected upon an arbitration that we had, and uh, this will be the last part before we get into it, but how could I best describe him? And we had an arbitration one time for my installation where they had been caught falsifying and manipulating clock rings. I'm sure some of y'all have encountered this same problem, but it had become rampant in my installation. Matter of fact, we had already had some pre-arbitration settlements concerning the issue. We had already had arbitration decisions concerning the issue, monetary awards given. But this one had a little bit different scenario. This one wasn't just falsifying and editing clock rings. This individual manager decided to clock individuals out while they were working at 1800 to appease upper management as if he made everybody back by the 1800 threshold while these carriers unbeknownst to them were out there working and weren't receiving any compensation for it logged into tax manually clocked them out left them out there for an hour or two working without any compensation coming their direction and we caught them and this situation I was the formal A representative for it. It had escalated up into arbitration. But prior to arbitration, we had a new labor advocate for management that had come on the scene for the Tennessee district. And he, he had started trying to negotiate, had a lot of conversations with Corey, giving us a lot of false promises, saying things that were untrue. A lot of things that he said that this individual, this manager that we had caught, he'll, he'll never see the light of day again. He'll never manage again. His career's over. It's a career killer. This manager essentially reached in these individuals' pockets, took a $100 bill out of their wallet of each of them, and walked off with it. That's essentially what he had done. And up until almost arbitration, they hadn't even compensated him yet for it. Here, a grievance was filed at informal and formal went to the DRT. Now here we are on the doorstep of arbitration and the Postal Service hasn't even compensated them for what they stole. And that's all it is. They stole from these individuals. But this labor advocate kept telling Corey and myself, and Corey would keep me in the loops a lot of the conversations prior to the hearing about, oh, you know, we're doing this and they're compensated and let's work something out. Let's negotiate. We don't have to go to hearing. This is something that we can resolve. I'm not going to put up with this. This is this is not going to be tolerated, blah, 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 blah. Right prior to hearing, he comes in again with more lies, more dishonesty. Statements that we know is not true. He's standing there talking to me and Corey, and he said, this, this manager right now is fighting for his job. He's over there fighting, begging for them not to get rid of him. Corey's looking at me, and he's just got that smirk on his face, and he said, JB, you believe that? No, I don't believe that. <laughs> I'm serious, guys. I'm telling you, they've already been compensated. You know, he's fighting for his job. We don't have to go in here to go to hearing. Then he starts trying to go in a direction that he was just simply false. Uh, he was simply making clock ring edits. Well, right then and there, the labor relations manager came up and said, "Yeah, he was just clock ring." Corey puts his finger up in the manager's face. I'm not speaking to you. And the look on this lady's face was in shock because here's the labor relations manager with her whole district trying to come up and put her two cents into it, and was met with a single finger. <laughs> so right then and there, I'm already chuckling inside she walks off in disgust 
the labor advocate says, you didn't have to do that. He was just simply making clock ring edits. That's my labor relations manager. I wasn't speaking to her. I was speaking to you. I don't believe what you're telling me is true. So we go on to hearing. In this hearing and in this next part, I hope I can tell it as good as it happened because I witnessed the most uncomfortable 10 minutes in arbitration history that I've ever been a part of. And I still laugh to this day to the point I've had tears in my eyes, to the point Corey's had tears in his eyes, and, and we still have tried to figure out where this came from. But we, I say we, Corey drags management around in this hearing. A lot of it through me, through my testimony, dragging management around. And why not? They stole from a letter carrier. We shouldn't have had to drag anybody around. We shouldn't even have to have been there, but yet we're here. So then we go outside for a break. Because we're asking for some money. We're asking for over and a do what they're, because we've already been to hearing. We've already had cease and desist. We already had monetary awards. We need management to stop falsifying and manipulating clock rings and intentionally stealing from letter carriers. What can we do to get this to stop? And he comes outside and he starts trying to run some figures by again. He starts going down the lies again. And I remember Corey saying, let me stop you right there. You can give me the remedy that we've come in here for. Don't come at me with any other offer, or I'm going to go in here and I'm going to try to bankrupt this bitch. And that guy's eyes blew up, big as golf balls. And we walked off, leaving them to ponder over it. They come back in. We go through the rest of the hearing. Both sides rest. So then we get to the closing arguments. In those closing arguments, Corey does his closing first. It's a contract case, so he he finishes his closing. And what I'm telling you transpired next, I promise with 100% on my life, this is the truth. This labor advocate got up and spent the first 10 to 15 minutes telling the arbitrator how great Corey is to the point of uncomfortable, to the point I was kicking my branch manage, uh, branch president's chair in laughter. But he starts it off with, Mr. Arbitrator, what you've witnessed here today is just a very well-spoken, very gifted, talented arbitration advocate. I wish I had half the talent that he did. I wish I could speak with the vocabulary that he has. I mean, just a staggering of a man, just well-spoken, gifted, talented, just kept going over and over. What you've been witnessed here today is when he walks through the door, his presence, how he walks into a room, the aura that he possesses to the point Corey starts looking at me. I'm looking at him. I'm kicking my branch president's chair. What in the hell is this guy doing? This is uncomfortable. Because if you kick my ass, I may shake your hand, but I damn sure ain't going to spend 10 to 15 minutes telling you how great you did it and how great you are at it. I'm going to take it and I'm going to walk off. But what we pride ourselves with the NALC is we're going to outwork you at every step of this process, right? We're going to outwork you at informal. We're going to outwork you at formal. Our DRT reps are going to outwork their counterparts. And in hearing, we're going to dominate a hearing. We're going to win the hearing. And if we do all that, then we've done everything we could do to win the case. 
But this individual went on a tyrant for 10, 15 minutes telling Corey how beastly of a man he was and how great you are and well-spoken and the the respect you garnish. And, And to the point, I was in tears. So we get out of the hallway, and he's like, what in the hell was that? I said, I don't know, but he wants an autograph. Go give it to him. He says, I got nothing to say after the amount of dishonesty he's displayed up until this hearing, the amount of dishonesty he displayed in this hearing. He said, I will not tolerate it. This new individual is somebody I thought we could maybe bargain in good faith with, but it doesn't, doesn't result in that. So this individual comes running up, starts talking to Corey, tells him, are we good? Corey said, we'll never be good. And this is where I tell you when I tell you how he acts and what he says is what he's about. This is how you know. Because this individual burnt that bridge. And he says, we'll never be good. You're a liar. You're untruthful. And you're dishonest. And you have no integrity. And you'll always be known to me as somebody without integrity. Now you can get the hell out of my face. And that individual turned around walked off. And we left the building. And we won that damn case. But that's what he's about. And that's the story that came to my mind when I wanted to be able to talk about, you know, what he's telling y'all, how we got to go about things. Everybody has their own way. I don't handle everything that I do like Corey Walton would. I try to, what's best for the scenario. I know I will not tolerate anything. And I know that everybody has their own style. But as long as your style is putting the city letter carrier first, that you're in front of that individual with those individuals behind you and you're on the forefront of that fight for those people, then you can't be wrong. So however you go about handling your business, as long as the city letter carrier's interest is at heart, then you'll always be successful. So we're here today to cover a couple topics. Let me get some stuff situated and let's get into it. First thing I want to get into, and I'll have Corey earmark this uh, when he gets uh, to posting it, however you call it, post it, put it up, whatever the correct terminology is. I have uh, don't have any podcast knowledge, so however he goes about it, I'll have him earmark where these topics are going to start. And the first topic I want to get into is grievance procedure slash informal steward. And the reason I want to get into that is while we were at National, uh, there were some individuals that came up. And when I say you can't take things for granted, there was individuals that really weren't understanding what what was being said as far as what is informal. What is formal? What what is step B and and this potential arbitration? What, What are those that you're speaking about? And so to a lot of individuals, well, that's common knowledge. But I'll never be too pompous to sit here and describe exactly what it is and to me any individual that's wanting to gain some knowledge uh, we're going to take the time out to to help them i sent to jeremy uh, who continues to do an amazing job thank you for jeremy everything that you do uh putting that uh website up and keeping things up to date sites for individuals to go to he's going to put this grievance procedure chart up on the web uh, website for those individuals to be able to use. But what I wanted to go over is the four steps of our grievance process. So when we're talking about informal, formal, those things, it's our grievance process. And the very first step in our grievance process for those individuals that are unfamiliar is called the informal step A meeting. 
meeting, meaning that an individual that wants to file a grievance, a protest against a, a management action or a disciplinary action, anything of that nature, we have 14 days to do so of when the employee became aware or the union became aware of the violation. Okay, so 14 days you have to investigate, to file a grievance at the informal Step A meeting. That is the first step. That's the shop level, the station level. Your steward will file the grievance. He'll meet with management to discuss the grievance at hand no later than the 14th day. And in this grievance procedure chart, it'll have the timelines out to the right of it. It'll start with the cause of grievance within 14 days after the occurrence. You will have the informal Step A meeting, and that will be between the employee slash steward and the supervisor. Okay, that will be the informal Step A meeting. Now, day one starts the next day. So today is August 21st. If I got a letter of warning today, which is Sunday, but I'm just using the date. If I got a letter of warning today, day number one would start tomorrow, August 22nd, and no later then that 14th day, we have to meet with our supervisor to discuss that grievance at the informal Step A level. If no resolution, the NALC can initiate a formal Step A meeting by sending the PS Form 8190 to the postmaster or installation head within seven days. So 14 days after today, let me pull my calendar so we can go through it. If we meet, just for calendar purposes, we wouldn't be meeting probably on a Sunday, but if we met with management at the informal Step A on September 4th, that would be 14 days from today, and no resolution could be reached, we then have seven days to appeal it to formal Step A. That is the second step of our grievance procedure, and that meeting will be between your branch president or their designee, and the postmaster slash installation head or their designee. The difference there is instead of us having to run to management to discuss a grievance, at the formal step A, management must set up a meeting with the union within seven days after that grievance is appealed. So that would be the second step of our grievance procedure. Those first two steps as a steward, as a union representative, a city letter carrier that's uh is acting as a representative, those two steps are very crucial to us as far as timelines because step B representatives and arbitration is going to be held by somebody that has been appointed to your DRT uh, representation and your national business agent handles your arbitration. But if a resolution is not met at the second step, that formal step A meeting, the next step would be the step B team. That grievance has to get to the Step B team no later than seven days. That will get it to the Step B team, and realistically, it will be out of uh, the local steward designee's hands. Those individuals are appointed to handle those positions. Then that grievance will, will set forth from there. But the third step, as far as this grievance procedure is concerned, is called the Step B, the Dispute Resolution Team. These individuals are tasked to review case files and see if they can't formulate a remedy. 
if the Step B team therefore can't come to a conclusion, the final stage of our grievance procedure is what is called arbitration slash court. However you'd like to describe it, it is very much a courtroom atmosphere, courtroom setting. And to a lot of people, it's mythical. It doesn't exist, but I can assure you that it, it very much exists. It's hard to, for me to believe when I first started that something that you you think is, I'm filing a grievance. It, it'll get resolved here at the local level or the next step. And as it progresses up through the steps, I'll never forget that first uh, arbitration I was getting prepped for. I was like, shit, it's real. <laughs> it's very real. And I'm fixing to walk right into it. But it is. Arbitration is the final say-so. You got two parties coming in there. You got the union, and then you got management's representatives. You'll have the union sitting on one side of the table, the management representative sitting on the other side of the table. And at that head of the table, you'll have an arbitrator slash judge, if you call it. And across from him, directly at the other end of the table, is where your witnesses will come in to testify. And that's exactly what it'll be. It'll be a courtroom setting. So that is our grievance procedure. It has very strict timelines. That is very important to remember these timelines. We cannot miss deadlines. It's a grievance killer. If we go outside those deadlines, if we wait 15 days to meet and file a grievance at informal and management says this grievance is untimely, you can wad it up and throw it in the trash if you didn't meet your deadline or do not have a written time limit extension. So we must adhere to these strict time limits as far as our grievance process and procedure. Once we usually get that grievance to the DRT within that seven days of the formal step ed meeting, that grievance is going to be in different hands from local union representatives. But anyways, for those individuals that came up, wanted to learn what is it that you're talking about, that's exactly it. Please refer to that grievance procedure chart. Be able to download that and print it off. That way you'll have it. Stick it in your uh, your folder, however you uh, organize your things. But keep that for yourself. That's a great reference chart. And since we're talking about stewards, we're talking about informal I know Corey's done some episodes way back in the beginning, and I heard him last week talking about informal and answered some questions, and then he said, well, JB's going to come in and elaborate a little more, and then he goes 45 more minutes, and I'm thinking, well, damn, how much more am I going to (laughs) elaborate? You've covered it. But uh, let's go over it. Let's talk about it. Roles of a steward. If you're an individual, and some of you I just met, and like I said, I saw the fire that was ignited in you, and I saw the passion that was burning, and you're looking to gain knowledge, but you just don't have anywhere to start, you know, thank you. Thank you for wanting to get the ball rolling. Thank you for wanting to represent your brothers and sisters in your station, and anything that I could do to help and assist you, be more than happy to. I'm just going to go over what I call Steward 101. We just had new stewards that were elected this calendar year, and I give this class a presentation twice. I give it in January, and then I gave it again in July, just because I want these individuals to get acclimated. you know. And I already know, because I know my installation management's number one thing to try to cause a steward to get frustrated. Want to get them frustrated to quit, because a station without a steward... Is a station like the Wild West. Management can do as they please. But once a steward is established in that station and they start to get knowledgeable and they start to gain information and they start understanding how to file grievances and holding management accountable to our collective bargaining agreements, well, then they can no longer manage outside those guidelines. 
So the first thing that management in my installation always wants to do is try to be a deterrent, try to frustrate you to quit. And so I want these individuals to know I don't have the cool sayings like Corey does, the, the 8190s, the, the devastator amongst devastators, the thriller in Manila. I don't have all those. But what I can say is the power of the pen is damning. They can't get away from it. And the 8190 is the final say. Everybody else's voice is temporary. Once I slap this 8190 on the table, it will have the final say. But if you're an individual and you're going to step up and be a representative in your station, one thing few things i'm sorry it it can sometimes be a thankless job but thank you i'm gonna thank you and i don't even know you but thank you for stepping up it'll get better it'll get better along the course of time just keep being there for your brothers and sisters you may not always know the answer to their question and you're not going to and i still don't but i take the time out to write it down and to try to get it for them And I let them know that. I don't know that answer, but I'm going to write your question down and I'm going to get back to you. And you'll start to garnish their respect when you come back to them with the answer that they needed. They'll get more comfortable with you. They'll trust you. They'll know that you say and you do as you say. And that means a lot. My biggest thing that I tell anybody that's getting started, you've got to be organized. I I cannot see doing it any other way. If you're a steward that's going to have a back seat full of union documents just thrown everywhere and information requests and you got stuff strolled out over your back seat or in your trunk, you're not going to be successful. To me, you have to be very, very organized. Get yourself some folders. Get some labels, some sticky notes. Anything that could help you. Even get a little filing cabinet. Whatever may be beneficial for you. You're going to want your stuff to be organized, your information request forms, you know, all your NALC forms, the things that you're going to need or have readily available to you when you file grievances. You're going to want to keep those documents uh, together, and you've got to be organized, in my opinion. You also want to be prideful of the NALC. I'm very, very prideful of the National Association of Letter Carriers. I'm happy to be a part of my opinion is the best craft in all the postal service. Um, there's a reason we're the highest paid craft and management owes us the utmost respect and we don't get it. But my opinion is, is I'm appreciative of custodians. I'm thankful for the mail handlers. I'm thankful for the distribution clerks and the window clerks, but nobody, nobody deserves more credit than the city letter carrier. Everybody from the postmaster down to the 204B scumbag should thank a letter carrier every single damn day for the paycheck that they get to slide in the pocket off the backs of our hard work. And that is why we always are prideful of the NLC and being a city letter carrier. You're going to have to be an educator. You're going to have to learn to research, get those members answers, get guidance. Never underestimate guidance. I seek guidance from Corey. I seek guidance from other individuals in my branch. My branch president, she's very knowledgeable. My MBA office, OWCP problems, other stewards. I had a steward ask me a question the other day, and he said, never mind, I'm looking it up. I said, shit, let me know when you find it, because I want the answer too. (laughs) But that's what I'm saying. Anything that could always help, get that guidance. And when you walk into a room and you're meeting with management, Do your due diligence. Do your due diligence. Understand what you're fixing to talk to management about. 
educate yourself, and be the smartest one in the room. If you want to be the steward, be the best damn steward that you can be. If you're trying to gain something out of this for self-gain, that you're trying to utilize the union to be a sorry carrier, then just quit. Be the best. Lead by example. Lead with integrity. Have an impeccable work ethic. Be honest. And kick ass for your brothers and sisters. If I could help anybody, and I've told y'all this before, and it shouldn't be, it's not rocket science, but we got to have our resources. Our joint contract administration manual, it's called our JCAM. If you don't have one, go to NALC.org and view it on there. They have a JCAM, and you'll be able to go to the index. We're going to go to the index here in just a second on a grievance, but I always encourage people, go to that index. Look for the topic that you're curious about gaining knowledge about and see if it's listed in there. More than likely it is, and then you'll be able to reference it in the contract and be able to gain knowledge about it. But that's the easy, uh, quick reference system there. But we have to utilize our JCAM. I always encourage new stewards, dive into Article 16. Get into Article 8 as it determines our overtime and how overtime will be distributed. Article 41 has a lot of letter carrier uh, provisions. We're going to want to be knowledgeable about that. Article 41, Section 2 goes over our opting, our hold down. These are common topics that you want to gain knowledge about first, and that way it'll help you. But also just look in the index, see what kind of topic that you're wanting to gain knowledge for, and utilize that. You should have one. If not, uh, you can print one from the NALC.org. But get you a JCAM or at least have it available to you uh, through an electronic device. The materials reference system. If you're brand new, you're scratching your head. What the hell did he just say? It's called the MRS. Corey calls it MERS. I call it MRS. But it's the materials reference system. And this just contains precedent setting resolutions, key contractual differences, step fours. You know, we're going to want those. It also has regional arbitrations. Why those would be beneficial is because if you're investigating a particular situation, you could get how an arbitrator viewed it. Also, when you come to want to start writing contentions, you know, there's nothing more beautiful than a very intelligent arbitrator writing a nice contention, a nice argument that you want to use. I don't mind telling you, I'll plagiarize it. I'm going to use it. If he wrote a beautiful contention or argument that supports what I'm dealing with at this current moment, click, copy, paste right there in my contentions. I'm not too proud. And it also has national-level awards. So these things are also beneficial. Again, go to the index. Look in that index. You'll be able to see the situation that you're dealing with or a lot of different topics that you would like to gain knowledge about, and you'll be able to uh, become more familiar there. And then one of the biggest are our defense to discipline. It's our discipline Bible. You know, we have to be involved. There's never a day that I could go by and not gain something out of defense to discipline. It It's going to be what we are always going to resort back to when we're fighting disciplinary actions against our brothers and sisters. Those things in there as far as just cause principles, you know, the blueprint that management must follow and how they go about not only issuing discipline, but what they must satisfy in the issuance of that discipline. And if you're a brand new steward, it's easy it's easy to read it and say, well, shit, they did it. They're guilty. They're done. <laughs> what can I do for them? It's, it's always going to sound like that because management wrote it. But it's how the service went about it. 
And did they meet the just cause provisions? And was there other things, due process violations along the way that they violated it in the administration of the discipline? So you're going to want to uh, gain knowledge through that. Article 16 addresses it in the JCAM, but the defenses to discipline is going to be your discipline Bible. So get that and start reading those things. If you're brand new and you're a steward or stepping up as a steward, please, please, please make sure you're properly certified to do so. If you're not properly certified to be the steward in the station that you're representing city letter carriers, it's a grievance killer. And it doesn't matter if it's a contract grievance. It doesn't matter if it's a disciplinary, if it's a removal grievance. The last thing that you want happen in any grievance, and especially a disciplinary one, is management says that you weren't even properly certified to represent your craft. And it will be a killer, a devastator. So make sure you're properly certified in accordance with Article 17, Section 2. If you're not sure, contact your branch president. If you don't have that resource there, contact your national business agent. They understand the importance of this. They will make sure you get the proper guidance on getting properly certified to represent city letter carriers. We can't do anything until we're properly certified. One of the biggest things as a deterrent in my installation is information and steward time on the clock i tell every new steward it's coming get ready for it so i give them the tools on the forefront to go ahead and combat that i give them a grievance starter for an article 17 violation for them not providing time on the clock to investigate and process grievances because i know management's i know their routine That's the first thing they're going to say. We're getting to it. We're getting to it. We're just behind today. We had to pivot. I know you need this time. And then it gets to an informal aid meeting. They just I just couldn't do it. Well, we got to stop that. And we're going to stop it with a grievance. And I got Jeremy to put up a grievance starter for this very thing. Because if you're new, this is what they're going to use as a tactic to try to persuade you and frustrate you to the point you quit. But you can keep fighting. And after a few of these three, four, and the DRT or the Formula A representatives are compensating you and they're telling management to cease and desist and then it starts getting visibility by other people wanting to know why we're seeing the same grievance come up. Why are you not giving him the steward time on the clock to the point where somebody tells him, give him the damn steward time that he requests? And it takes that moment to get to the other side of the bridge to start holding him accountable to our contractual agreements. But 17-4... <clears throat> on page 17-4, it talks about your rights as a steward. One of those rights is to, for paid time to conduct the activities of a steward. It also gives you the right to obtain information. All right, so those two things are huge for a brand new steward. If you're just getting started, you're going to want to know that, hey, I have the right to information and I have the right to time on the clock. And if they don't give us Either one, we're going to meet them with a grievance. If they give us the information, but they never give me the time to investigate, we're going to hit them with another. I have told my stewards, and I'm so thankful for each and every one of them. I've told y'all numerous times. I'm going to tell y'all again. I'm going to tell them again. They're phenomenal. 
They're amazing. They do incredible work. They make my job as a formal aid representative easy. There are several of them that could replace me, and I do not mind telling them that. They are very good at what they do, very knowledgeable. I don't huddle over anything to try to prevent somebody from getting better. I want to give full disclosure of everything that I know, everything that we've become aware of to try to make them better. And that's the way this system should work. If you're a person that just wants to hover over all the information and hover over the knowledge and never want to put that knowledge out there for another individual, if you want to hold somebody back, then get the hell out of the way. You're in the wrong business. Okay, you should be right there wanting to help them because in my mindset, and I know it's Corey's mindset, that I'm not worried if somebody could be as good as me or better than me. That just means we got two individuals now that are good. And if we get another one, now we got three individuals that are good. And the more people that we get in a unified area that are good at what they're capable of doing, the more we're going to be able to better represent our carriers. And that's what it's about. It's about the city damn letter carry. But if you're too busy hovering over the knowledge to protect your position, then you are in the wrong place. But anyways, sorry, uh, great stewards, a- a- again, they make my job very, very easy. But if those individuals, you know, I tell them, if they're not going to give you your information, they're not going to give you your steward time, we're going to address it. So Article 31, it also addresses management's responsibility to give us our information. Okay, so when we put an information request, and like I said a second ago, I tell all the stewards, hey, I firmly believe, and this was the point I was trying to get to a minute ago, I firmly believe if I get a case file that has an 8190, I have a request for information that was signed, received by management. I have a request for steward time that was signed, received by management. And I don't have anything else but a little synopsis from the steward that says, hey, on said date, um, City carrier Joe Bell, that's not on the overtime desired list, was forced to do a takeoff on another assignment. Requested information on this said date. Requested steward time to date. I have not received anything, but there's a little synopsis of what happened. I firmly believe I'm going to win that grievance 100% of the time. Even without any information, without you ever getting your steward time on the clock, I'm eventually going to get that information. I'm not worried about that. It's coming. At one step or another, some people are going to make some money off of it. But I firmly believe if you just do your due diligence and cover your bases as a steward, putting things in writing, and you get an 8190 that you discussed a a grievance with management that you were never able to investigate or support your alleged violation because they didn't provide you any information, and you appeal that to formal step A, I feel confident I can win that grievance. So we always always submit our information request in writing okay if you're brand new and you're a brand new steward i don't do anything verbally nothing not a damn thing is verbal and it's not you know management uh, hit you with it you can trust me i can trust you to put your pen and your name on that piece of paper and we can move on it's not that i don't trust you it's not that i'm going to allow you to get over on me And so I don't care if you have the best rapport with management or you have the worst rapport with management. This is just good business. This is you representing your city letter carriers. And that's the way I tell management, you know, hey, look, I've been tasked with doing something and this is just business. Okay, so I need to submit this information request and that's it. 
and they should sign it received. They can make a copy of it, and now you have a copy. But as a steward, first thing you're going to want to do is when an individual approaches you, let's say the situation a minute ago, Mr. Joe Bell comes up and says, hey, yesterday I was forced to do a, a takeoff, and I'm not on the overtime desired list. You as a steward will immediately go to your organized files, get your request for information out, and submit that to management. And you'll retain a copy of that. And when you submit that information request, I recommend go ahead and submitting a request for steward time. You're requesting set amount of hours. And then now you know, because we went over the grievance procedure earlier, that you have 14 days to meet it informal. So I need this time prior to this date. I need you to get me my information. And I need for this time to be made available to me on the clock to be able to investigate this grievance. If management gives you the information, now you have these clock rings, you have an updated overtime sign-up sheet, you have these things, but they're not providing you any time on the clock. They keep telling you each day, I want to get you that time, I want to get you that time, today's not a good day, maybe tomorrow, you come in the next day, well, so-and-so, Susie called out, so we got to keep pushing that time off, and they keep bumping that time down the road and kicking that can. Don't get dis uh, disturbed. Don't get discouraged. This train only moves one direction. Once we start investigating the grievance, once we start pursuing a violation of our contractual bargain agreements, please know this. This damn train only goes one way. And you can either get on it or you can get left behind. But one thing's for certain is it's going to keep trucking. So once we get to that 14th day and management never gave us that steward time on the clock, we're going to go ahead and process that grievance off the clock the night before. Okay, I know that's something that, you know, I know individuals are busy and they have lives and everything like this, but the quickest way to stop this from happening is to go ahead, process that grievance at night, Go ahead, like Corey said last week, you're going to want to sit down and you'll see it in the grievance starter. There's a grid. 6 to 6.15, I laid out all my clock rings. From 6.15 to 17, I organized them by overtime preference and went through to uh, highlight the violations from 7.15 and so forth. Keep going. Just indicate each step that you're doing, and that way when it gets down to the end of it, you got your total amount of time from 6 to however long it took you, let's say 9 o'clock, 3 hours, you know, to fill out the 8190, to prepare all my stuff, to print off my contract language, to review it, whatever it took. Now you got this. So in the morning when management says, hey, don't, don't we have to discuss some grievance today? Yeah, well, actually two. Wait till you see their eyes. What do you mean two? Well, yeah, I got two grievances. One for the Article 8 that I told you I was investigating, and then the second one is because you didn't give me my time. Well, I told you that we we were you know had staffing issues or we had overtime or we had call outs. That's not my concern. All I know is you didn't give me my time, and we mutually didn't decide when that time would be be made available in the future. Therefore, I'm now going to meet on this grievance, but I got this extra grievance. I got this subsequent grievance, and that's a secondary grievance. You'll have two. You'll have the 8190 for your Article 8 violation. And then you'll have your article, I mean, 8190 for your Article 17 violation. And you'll be able to utilize those contentions that Jeremy put up on the website to go ahead and put it with your grievance pack. Okay? 
That way now you got two grievances that if y'all don't agree on, that'll go to formal step A. Now the branch president's going to be given an opportunity to talk to the installation head or the postmaster and say, hey, why in the hell is so-and-so not getting their uh, requested steward time? Well, let's remedy this thing because obviously he didn't get it. We're going to ask that you be paid at that uh, applicable overtime rate, and we're going to ask that management cease and desist this behavior of not providing paid grievance handling time on the clock. That is how you start building the foundation of getting management to honor steward time requests, allowing you to be starting in the process of being the best steward that you can. Okay, so do not get deterred. Do not get frustrated in the beginning. Management's going to do everything they can. If management doesn't provide you any information by the informal A meeting, that's fine. Write a brief little story so the next person who gets this grievance, steward so-and-so, requested the uh, information that's included in the grievance case file, never received this information. I needed this information to prove management violated whatever it is you're investigating. Also, along the way, I wasn't provided any information. I also was not provided my steward time on the clock to investigate. Let that next person understand what's going on. They understand your story now. And then they can push that grievance forward, and then they can build that case file. So in turn, when the decision comes back down and management thinks their voice is the last voice that will be heard, you'll get that language that you need. You'll get that foundation, that footing to be able to start building upon them to make them be contract compliant. So anyways, hope hopefully that made a little bit of sense to the new people out there. Thank you uh, again. Thank you. Thank you for being involved. Thank you for being activists for the union and representing your brothers and sisters. And if there's anything that anybody ever, that I could help anybody ever do. And again, I'm not anybody, but I'm somebody that's willing to help. And so please let Corey know what it is that you're needing help with. He'll give you my phone number, be more than happy to try to help out in any situation. So that's my thing as far as being a new steward. Don't let them get you frustrated. Don't let them cause you to be deterred to give it up. Thank you for stepping up. Keep that fight going. And listen, the power of the 8190, the power of the pen, is ultimately the prevailing document. It's the final say. Okay? So thanks. What are we going to do next? So that leads us into CCAs being assigned to do rule craft work. Now, I hate to alert y'all to something, but Corey was dishonest. And I know you're thinking, no, not Corey. He told y'all I was an expert at this very subject. I am the opposite of expert on this subject matter, and I hope that doesn't uh, scare you away. But what I do know is how to research and how to gain knowledge about this subject. I've had to file a few, but not many. My installation is predominantly city routes. I only have, matter of fact, 11 rural routes in my whole installation. So it's not something that we encounter a lot in my installation as per se. But what I don't mind doing is telling you how to get it going. How to get the ball rolling. Also, there's going to be a grievance starter for this very topic that Jeremy's going to put on the website also going to have an information report that I think would be beneficial uh, for you individuals to have. And I'm going to go over about how to read that information report because this is a contract case. So it is going to be important that we support 
what we're alleging because that's what we're saying we're saying uh, allegedly this violation occurred on a said date we have this information that will support the violation so we've said it and we're going to prove it and that's a contract case and the burden of proof is always on the union so we must prove what we're saying but when it comes to ccas performing rule work you know what are we talking about <clears throat> we're talking about cross craft assignments Okay, a CCA is a city carrier assistant, a city carrier. They have what is called RCAs. Those are rural carrier assistants. City carrier assistants should be assisting city carriers, not over helping the rural carriers. And while they're still carriers at heart, they're not my problems and their staffing is not my problems. What is my problems is my brothers and sisters in the city letter carrier craft. So getting started, just like I've always said, what are we going to do first? You know, we see a CCA that's been assigned to a rural carrier's assignment, and we want to grieve it. Because that CCA is not on a dual appointment, meaning he's not assigned as a CCA and a RCA. He has one appointment. And that's as a CCA employee, okay? So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go to our JCAM. We're going to try to gain some knowledge about cross-craft assignments. And is this a violation? Uh, technically, are they delivering mail? Yes. But are they in the right craft to do so? Are they in the right appointed section of their duties to be able to do this? So we need to gain the knowledge to see if management has assigned them across craft lines in accordance with our agreements. We flip to the very back of our JCAM. We're going to see right there on page index-4, and you'll see down at the bottom, crafts. And the second one down, you're going to see crossed craft assignments. That is where we're going to go in our JCAM to get the literature, the provisions that govern cross-craft assignments, and you're going to see right there, it's going to be under Article 7. It's going to be Section 2, B, and C, and we're going to be able to start and pick up this uh, information on 7-14. There's going to be a little bit of reading in this uh, portion, and forgive me, but that's what we're here to do. And so if you have the opportunity to listen and you don't have the opportunity to read along, this will be beneficial for me reading to you. Just forgive me for my accent. But when we get to 7-14, it's going to be Article 7, Section 2, B, and C. Right there you'll see in bold black letters, cross-craft assignments. Article 7, Sections 2B and 2C set forth two situations in which management may require career employees to perform work in another craft. This may involve a carrier working in another craft, or an employee from another craft performing carrier work. It's going to tell you about insufficient work. Under Article 7, 2B, management may require an employee to work in another craft at the same wage level due to insufficient work in his or her own craft. This may affect a full-time employee or a part-time regular employee for whom there is insufficient work on a particular day to maintain his or her weekly schedule as guaranteed under Article 8, Section 1. Now, what we're trying to find out is on the limits of management's discretion to make cross-craft assignments and 
Can a CCA or a regular city carrier employee perform work even in the rural carrier craft? Well, this has been addressed right here at the bottom of page 714 by a national level arbitration award. That national level award that has established that management may not assign employees across uh, crafts except in restricted circumstances. Now, although this national level award is an APWU decision, it was decided under the joint NALC-APWU-USPS 1981 National Agreement. Okay, so that's incorporated into our JCAM. And I'm going to read Arbitrator Block's uh, decision here and how he interpreted Article 7.2b and c. It goes as follows on pages 6 and 7 of that award. Taken together, these provisions support the inference that management's right to cross craft lines is substantially limited. The exceptions to the requirement of observing the boundaries arise in situations that are not only unusual, but also reasonably unforeseeable. There is no reason to find that the parties intended to give management discretion to schedule across craft lines merely to maximize efficient personnel. This is not what the parties have bargained. That an assignment across craft lines might enable management to avoid overtime in another group, for example, is not by itself a contractually sound reason. It must be shown either that there was insufficient work for the classification or, alternatively, that work was exceptionally heavy in one occupational group and light as well in another. Inherent in these two provisions, as indicated above, is the assumption that the qualifying conditions are reasonably unforeseeable or somehow unavoidable. To be sure, management retains the right to schedule tasks to suit its need on a given day, but the right to do this may not fairly be equated with the opportunity to, in essence, create insufficient work through intentionally inadequate staffing. To so hold would, not, would be to allow management to effectively cross craft lines at will merely by scheduling work so as to create the triggering provisions of subsections B and C. This would be an abuse of the reasonable intent of this language, which exists not to provide means by which the separation of crafts may be routinely ignored, but rather to provide the employer with certain limited flexibility in the fact of pressing circumstances. Now, while Arbitrator Block went on to uh, describe situations where cross-craft assignments may be made and when situations are considered unforeseeable, what the JCAM goes on to also indicate on page 7-16 is where we're going to hang our hat on. This right here is unambiguous language. It can't be miscure, it can't be skewered to satisfy management's need because on page 7-16 it specifically states rule carriers excluded. It goes on paragraph A of this memorandum of understanding and the National Agreement, page 145, provides that crossing craft provisions of Article 7.2, among other provisions, apply only to the crafts covered by the 1978 National Agreement, i.e. letter carrier, clerk, motor vehicle, maintenance, and mail handler. So cross craft assignments may be made between the carrier craft and these other crafts in either direction in accordance with Article 7.2. Here's the key language right here. Listen up. However, rule letter carriers are not included. So cross craft assignments to 
and from the rural carrier craft may not be made under Article 7.2. They may only be made in emergency situations as explained below. Rural carriers will never come in my craft and perform bargaining unit work. Now, I've often told a lot of people, I'll take all the work that you want to give us. I have some overtime desired uh, individuals in my station. We have a healthy overtime desired list. I have some overtime hounds. If management wants to ask that individual, would they like to come in and throw packages in the morning and that individual doesn't mind and they want the extra money, go for it. If they want to give us work somewhere else, go for it. We'll take all the money that you want to throw at us. But if an individual is being harmed by the continual scheduling in the uh, in the uh, rural carrier craft, I'm going to take issue with that, okay? Especially if my employees are being forced to work maybe off assignment or they are getting forced to do things that they did not sign up for while I have a CCA over here working on a rural carrier assignment, I'm going to grieve that because that CCA should be over here where he was appointed to work and then therefore you wouldn't have had to violate somebody or force them to carry an assignment that's not what they desired. Does that make sense? If if management assigns a CCA to perform rural carrier work and in turn tells a non-ODL letter carrier that they're going to have to perform a takeoff, well, shit, you, you are harming my city letter carrier by assigning the CCA in the rural carrier craft. Okay, so we're not going to allow that because the contract specifically states in either direction. Okay, that means a rural carrier will not come onto the city side. And that means by contract, the city letter carrier or CCA should not go on their side. And so we're going to file that grievance. So this is the foundation of our contractual language, what we're going to base our grievance upon. Okay, so now we know the contract, we know what the um, the national agreement, the JCAM set forth as far as cross-craft assignments. The JCAM also gives us their argument. When you're a steward and you're filing a grievance, I always say, put on management's hat for a second. When you're investigating a grievance and you're putting forth your arguments, at some point in time you have to think, what is management going to say? What is going to be their argument? That way I can go ahead and start cutting it off. Because if I'm already thinking like them and thinking what they're going to put uh, present at the bargaining unit table, I mean at the uh, grievance table, then I'm going to be better suited to be able to cut those arguments off in my investigation. The JCAM clearly tells you what their argument's going to be. It says right here, they may be only made in emergency situations. That definition of emergency given to management is going to be everything. But we're going to combat that. We're going to fight against what management determines is an emergency. Now, Article 3.F gives the definition of emergency. But also right here in Article 7, it tells us crossing crafts in emergency situation. This is what Article 3.F says about an emergency and management's rights. Article 3.F says, To take whatever actions may be necessary to carry out its mission in an emergency situation, i.e. an unforeseen circumstance, 
or a combination of circumstances which calls for immediate action in a situation which is not expected to be of recurring nature. That's management's argument in a nutshell right there. The only thing they can tell you because the contract is clear, it's unambiguous about crossing crafts in either direction is not permitted. The only time they can do it is when they declare that it was an emergency situation. That's the only argument they're going to have to have. That's the only argument they're going to have. Now, if they say it, I want them to prove it. You know, that burden of proof, while it's still a contract case and that burden of proof is on us, if they're going to say something, I'm going to force them to prove it. Now, the biggest emergency situation that management's probably been using is COVID. COVID, COVID. Our staffing, our staffing, our staffing. We, we can't staff. So we need the CCAs to cover these rule carrier assignments because we, we're under COVID right now, and that's an emergency situation. COVID might have been an emergency situation in the beginning, but it is not unforeseen anymore. Matter of fact, we got arbitrable history now where Arbitrator August even said, you cannot declare COVID as an unforeseen circumstance. Matter of fact, the NALC and the USPS, they have constantly negotiated MOUs through the course of this pandemic to help with certain situations. I'm sure the national whatever rule carrier union has also negotiated MOUs to help with staffing. But the rule carrier side, the rule carrier staffing is not a city letter carrier problem. That's a postal service problem. And whatever they need to do to better staff the rule carrier craft is what they need to be addressing. So COVID is not going to be a substantiated argument for them because it is no longer unforeseen. They know it's here. They know it's coming. They know staffing is going to be an issue. Sick calls. They may say, well, we didn't expect sick calls today. They should schedule planning on sick calls. And whoever they have to force in their rural craft to perform that extra work to get that mail delivered is none of my concern. The rural carrier craft contract is not of my concern. What is of my concern is my city letter carrier who's not on a dual appointment, who's been appointed to carry mail in the city letter carrier craft being forced to go deliver rural carrier assignment. The questions and answers, even in Article 17 and the M document, I believe it's number 1833, and that's question number 15, may CCAs hold dual appointments? No. That's clear cut. CCAs cannot perform city letter carrier work and then hold another appointment where they can perform rural carrier work. It's prohibited. So things of sick calls, covid Things of that nature are are not unforeseen. Those are things that we deal with on a daily basis. I don't want to hear heavy mail volume. Things like that, those are also not unforeseen. That is very very much on a day-to-day basis. We have light mail, we have heavy mail, but nevertheless, just because you have heavy mail volume doesn't give you the latitude to be able to remove a CCA from the uh, city uh, city carrier craft to go over and perform rural carrier work. So now we got the guidelines that govern rural carriers that they're excluded, that we're not to be be making cross-craft assignments in either direction, and the only argument that management can have 
is it was an emergency situation, which I'm going to have to have them explain. If I'm meeting at it formal and formal A, and they say, well, it was an emergency, how? Well, it just was. We've had COVID, and you know, I mean, we've had staffing problems. That's not unforeseen. How long have we been under COVID now? Since the early 2020. We should be well adapted by now to um, being able to combat COVID staffing problems. That's a postal service problem. That's a postal service rule carrier problem. But when it comes to evidencing our grievance, when we sit down at the table, we'll have our contract language. We'll have our knowledge about cross-craft assignments because now we've read this. We've, we've taken in this information. But it's a contract case, and we're going to want to support our burden of proof. And the way we support our burden of proof is through information. Number one, we can have the CCA write a statement. That would be a great source of proof. CCA writes a statement. I, CCA, was forced by management on said date to carry rule carrier assignment route number whatever. Carrier statements from our brothers and sisters. Maybe they were forced to carry a takeoff when they didn't desire overtime and they're pissed. They'd be happy to write you a statement because they're probably going to want to be wheeled into this remedy somehow because they had their contractual rights violated because management trampled on the contract to send the CCA to carry rule carrier work. Statements are always great. They show harm too. So we want to be able to get statements. But what about information request what could we do as far as information request to be able to establish that the violation took place well the first thing we're going to have to be knowledgeable about is tax right our time attendance collection system everything that we do is documented in tax as a city letter carrier in my installation when i'm performing office work i'm on function 722 That means I'm in the office working on city carrier route. When I move to the street, I move to a function 721. That means I'm out delivering on street delivery. And that's indicated by 721. Okay, If I was to work on my edit book or maybe move to putting on labels on my case, I would move to 743. If management... My vehicle broke down and I had to be on standby time. They may move me to 354. What I'm saying is there's operational codes for all of this. There's an operational code for city employees on rural routes. Well, where do we get that from? There's a handbook that's called M, M as in Mary, 32. It's going to have a complete list of operation numbers. And their definitions. If you have a thumb drive, you're going to want to save that. You can find it. Google. I've told y'all. I bet y'all are sick and tired of hearing me say Google it. Uh, You can. You can Google it. You'll find it. It's probably on NALC.org. I'm not positive, but it might be. But anyway, M32 is going to have your mods numbers. These operational codes. That's going to be beneficial for you, not only in this particular grievance, but any grievance. You'll know exactly when you're looking at tax and you see an unfamiliar code, this will help you define it. But if you look at code number 757, that is for city employees on rural routes. 
and it simply states work hours of rural carriers, substitute, associate, and auxiliary rural carriers, and clerical and city delivery employees temporarily working on a rural route. So when I pull clock rings and I see CCA so-and-so moved to a time clock function, or more more uh, probable is management moved them to this function, 757, because they don't want their hours counting towards the city delivery side. They're moved to the function 757. That is now a form of proof. We have documented evidence through tax, their report, their program, that this CCA on this said date moved to operation 757, which is designated to the rural carrier craft. Now, I told y'all earlier, sometimes management wants to get a little crafty. I know in my installation, when it's been this particular grievance, or a 204B performing performing bargaining unit work, or a manager, supervisor, whoever, hell, a custodian, we, we've caught them all, outperforming bargaining unit work, they don't necessarily move in tax. They don't want that, that trail. So they think if I cover it up in tax and I leave them on a city carrier function or whatever, uh, you know, 204Bs, they're not going to clock to that function. They're just going to go out there and deliver our work, and it's up to us to, to, to bust them on it. But anyhow, this is a report that I have found very beneficial. I got Jeremy to put one up on the website, and when you download it, you're going to see that it's in the form of Excel. And Excel is a program that has rows and columns. You know, our, our columns have letters and our rows have numbers. Why I love this report is because it is a complete uh, dialogue of that assignment. And so it's called, it's from a program called DMS, and it is called the Street Route Management Detail Report. And you're going to want to ask for that report with the rural carrier route number. Now, when you get this report, some of these columns are going to be closed. And, and why you're going to want that is because if management didn't clock this individual or move this individual over to a function that evidences rural carrier work, and then we don't have statements, and they try to lie and say, well, no, or he didn't do it until everybody had left the office you know, and then we determined that later on we saw him doing this rural carrier work. But anyhow, when you get this report, you'll be able to start opening these columns. You know, column A will be the scan sequence. It puts your packages in sequential order. And when you, we used to have MSPs, those MSPs would also be listed. But this will have your sequential order of packages. It will have uh, B, the uh, sequence. Column C is the zip code it's associated with. D is where your route ID comes from. Okay, that's going to uh, evidence the route that these packages is assigned to. Route uh, Column E is going to tell you what type of route it is. Route F is going to tell you the employee who did it. Okay, that's where we start opening these columns. Now, if you ask management to print you this report, you're going to get these columns closed off and you're going to get some bogus looking report that you can't do. You need it emailed to you in the Excel format and just tell them you'll print it off yourself. But ask for it. When you put in your request for information, DMS, Street Route Management Detail Report for Rural Route Number 1 on whatever date, I'm asking for this information to be emailed to this address in the Excel format. And then just have them to it. If they never provide it, 
what did we talk about earlier? This train's moving one direction. That information request that is signed now goes to the formal Step A representative to where they can add the issue that management violated Article 31 by failing to provide information and will teach them along the way. Again, you have to teach management. It's like the dog, the new puppy that you bring in the house and it keeps pissing in the living room floor. And you go over there and you scrape its nose in the carpet thinking, you know, well, this will do it. It'll get mad. It'll get frustrated having its nose scraped in the... You have to do management the same way. When they mess up, you got to rub their nose in it until eventually they just quit doing it. They get trained and then they provide the damn information. You know, instead of trying to uh, be an obstacle, just provide me my information. The grievance is what it is. But now that row, I mean that column uh, F, that's going to tell us who the employee was. And then in column G, it's going to give you the employee type. And when you download this and you start opening these columns as I'm going along with them, you'll see. And then column H, that's going to be the device ID. So you'll have the scanner that it was used. Uh, and then it keeps going all the way across. You got the, the vehicle ID. You'll have all the addresses where the packages were designated to. Out to the far right, you'll even have the barcode, who it was scanned by. But this is a great report that's available to us upon request. And it will establish, I mean, it will help you evidence a few things. Like I said, 204Bs, out doing bargaining unit work. After everybody leaves and they go take a, a three-hour chunk and, and throw it out there and go deliver it. And then we see them out there. But yet, we don't have any tax report that shows it. We don't know uh, who did it. So we request this report. And it will show us because when they scan that, when they log into the scanner, it, it will link them to this report. And we'll have evidence of it. So that is another great report along with the tax. So if we meet at the table... With a statement from the CCA, with uh, our tax report that shows the CCA moved to Operational Code 757, and we have this DMS report, we have substantiated our burden of proof that this violation did take place, that this individual was improperly assigned to rural carrier work, right? So then we get to file our grievance. In that grievance starter, you're going to see an issue statement. It's going to already assist you in how you're going to want to formulate your issue, your facts, your contentions. It's even going to have a requested remedy. And after we go over this, I'm going to read an arbitration decision to you about this very, um, about this very grievance and what Arbitrator August had to say about it. In that issue statement, simply did management at your station violate Step 4 Settlement M document 1276 via Article 15 of the National Agreement by assigning rural craft work to city carrier assistance, CCA's names, and dates. And if so, what should the remedy be? Now, you probably heard Step 4 Settlement 1276. You're thinking to yourself, what is Step 4 Settlement? Step 4 Settlements are national interpretive issues that have already been resolved between the parties and are now incorporated into our contract via Article 15. Okay? That M document, 1276, states this. The issuance in this grievance is whether management violated the national agreement when it assigned a part-time flexible letter carrier to perform rural letter carrier craft duties. After reviewing this matter, we mutually agreed that 
City letter carriers may be assigned to perform duties in the rural carrier craft in emergency situations as specified in Article 3.F of the National Agreement and the cross-craft provisions of Article 7.2 do not apply to the rural letter carrier craft. Okay? Clear as day. They do not apply. We cannot go perform rural carrier work and a rule carrier cannot come perform my work. It's done. The only argument they could ever, ever produce is an emergency situation, and they're going to have to evidence what the emergency was. So what are we asking for when this happens? You know, this is something that could get sticky. You know, if it's, if it's crystal clear that just a CCA performed rule carrier work, but nobody in the city letter carrier craft was harmed, you know, is it just effectively a rural carrier should have filed a grievance that the CCA was performing their work? That's probably what management's going to tell you. They're going to say, well, that's a rural carrier grievance. They should be the ones to file. No, we're filing a grievance because the contract specifically states that they may not cross crafts in either direction. So you have harmed them because they do not have dual appointments, you have harmed that CCA by assigning them in a craft they are not appointed to carry mail. And essentially, you have scheduled them out of schedule. They should have been over here. They were scheduled. They reported to work. They came to work here to perform city letter carry work. But yet, you have put them in a craft that they do not belong in, a craft that you prohibited from putting them in. So we want that time to be given back to them. We want them to receive compensatory time off for the amount of hours that they've worked in this other craft, or be awarded either at the straight time rate or the overtime rate for the hours they worked over there. So when we're thinking about remedy, what's going to bring that CCA back to whole? Take them, I mean, put them back from where they came from. They were not scheduled. They're not allowed to be appointed in the rural carrier craft. They should have been in the city letter carrier craft. But yet you made them carry work or made them carry an assignment outside of their craft. So we're going to want that individual made whole by bringing them back to what they took away from them, either his time or pay him more money to quit violating our contract because our contract strictly prohibits that. Or you might have a situation where you did have letter carriers that were forced to perform overtime. A letter carrier that didn't sign up desire overtime. They're on the non-overtime desire list. But yet, since management assigned this CCA to perform work in another craft, they were required to perform either maybe the overtime on their own assignment or overtime on another assignment. So you have now harmed my bargaining unit to where you would want to include those individuals into your grievance. You know, because of management's actions, because they violated that M document 1276, where they're pro prohibited from assigning CCAs into another craft, if they wouldn't have violated that provision, the trickle-down effect is my bargaining unit, my city letter carriers, wouldn't have been harmed by having them carry overtime when they didn't preference to do so. So that, when I say it could get sticky, you could have another issue there and other additional remedies that you're going to want them compensated. Because not only now am I going to want the CCA compensated, I'm going to ask for either compensatory time off or 
pay at the overtime rate for the amount of hours that the non-ODL letter carrier had his contractual rights violated because of your actions. I hope it makes sense because, uh, again, it's a trickle-down. Management assigned this CCA to perform our uh, rule carrier work. In the meantime, individuals in the city letter carrier craft were required to do overtime because of that action. Because if that CCA would have been over here, he would have covered that work and we wouldn't have had to force individuals against their preference. I do want to read an arbitration decision, and this one is uh, on the website as well, so for you to be able to download and read and check it out. And I'm not going to read the other one that's on the website, but it's from Arbitrator uh, Drucker, and it really is a compliance um, resolution, remedy, uh, award to this very grievance here to where the, the remedy escalated from 100% to 150 percent so arbitrators recognize that article 7 that rule carriers are excluded to and from this is going to be <clears throat> arbitration it's going to be c-35027 it's from arbitrator august and this date of award was february 19 2021 so probably uh, almost a year into the pandemic and this is what arbitrator august had to say uh, first, I'm going to read the issue, and the issue in this grievance was, did management violate Articles 3 and 7 of the National Agreement when they assigned city carrier assistant employees to perform work in the rural carrier craft? If so, what is the appropriate remedy? The facts of this case were on May 10, 2020, management at the North Carolina Post Office utilized CCA employees to perform work in the rural carrier craft. <clears throat> the union alleged that management willfully and deliberately violated the national agreement by allowing the CCAs to perform work in the rural carrier craft based on a previous Step B decision which established the service's actions as a violation. The parties have agreed to settle the following grievances based on the arbitrator's decision in this instant case. So they had grievances held in abeyance pending the outcome of this resolution and they were going to apply this remedy to those cases. A little bit of the union's contentions here is the union contended that it is a contract case. The burden is theirs to prove a violation occurred. They further contended that there is no dispute between the parties that city carrier assistants were utilized across craft lines and worked rural carrier craft duties on May 10, 2020 in the Fayetteville, North Carolina Post Office. According to the union, the dispute lies in whether or not utilizing CCAs across crafts to work rural craft duties is a violation of Article 7 of the National Agreement. It goes on to state the cross-craft assignments that we read earlier in Article 7 on page 7-14. The union contended that Article 7, Sections 2B and C clearly state that there are two situations when management may require career employees to perform work in another craft. They argue that the CCAs are a non-career supplemental workforce and therefore are not eligible to be utilized across craft lines. Additionally, the union contended rural carriers are excluded. And it goes on to state the exclusion that we read earlier about CCAs and rural carriers prohibited from crossing craft lines. The union maintained that management's entire defense to the violations alleged was the COVID-19 pandemic and the service continued to classify the pandemic as an emergency. 
as well as I'm sure they will when you meet with management. That's going to be uh, an easy go-to for them, that we're under a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic, and how could that not be seen as a emergency situation? But Arbitrator August beautifully um, distinguishes that or extinguishes that argument here in a moment. It was the union's argument that they strongly dispute management's assertion that Article 3F gives the service the authority to violate the national agreement. They maintain that the COVID-19 pandemic is not an unforeseen circumstance, nor is it a combination of circumstances which calls for immediate action in a situation which is not expected to be of reoccurring nature. According to the union, management's argument may have applied when the pandemic first started, but the union insisted that the service cannot rely on that argument months later. Additionally, the union argued that management failed to provide any specific evidence about how the pandemic has affected the Fayetteville installation or why it has affected the rural carrier craft much harder than the city carrier craft, which would cause management to continuously violate national agreement at Article 7.2. It was the position of the union that management's argument that an emergency existed is simply not substantiated by the evidence. When I tell you they say, oh, it's an emergency, show me. Prove it. That's a burden that they're going to have to satisfy. This is a contract case, and we're going to bring our documents and our information to substantiate the violation occurred. But when they start making claims that, well, an emergency existed, they need to substantiate that emergency, and you need to hold them accountable to that at the informal A meeting. Whatever's, whatever comes out in that informal A meeting, we take notes. We're writing down the things that they say. And anytime we can get undisputed facts at Formal A to go ahead and declare that a CCA, that it's not disputed by either party, that a CCA did perform rural carrier work, that is a beautiful undisputed fact that we could put in Block 16 that would just now move this grievance to was it underneath Article 3.F or not. So that's definitely something that you want if if your counterpart uh, wants to go ahead and establish that under undisputed facts, go ahead and notate that in Block 16 that it is undisputed by both parties that CCA so-and-so performed rural carrier work on said date, and then the rest of those arguments are done. We don't need the information. That that has already occurred. Um, to We've already substantiated that argument now by the undisputed facts. The union contended that the NALC and the service have both recognized the impact of COVID-19 has had uh, has had on operations and have entered into multiple MOUs addressing the issues related to COVID-19. The union further contended that these arguments have allowed management certain operational concessions due to COVID-19 issues that would normally be in conflict with the national agreement. However, the union argued that there was no MOU discussed, negotiated, or agreed upon relating to allowing management to utilize employees across craft lines due to any COVID-19 related issues in conflict with the collective bargaining agreement. That's what the union was arguing. The service had opportunities to address this through MOUs, and there was no agreed upon MOU to allow cross-craft assignments with the rural carrier craft. It's still under the provisions of Article 7.2 that the rural carriers are excluded, and there was nothing that disputes that or changes that. In management's contentions, it was the services position that the city carrier system, the CCAs, utilized in the rural carrier craft were compensated for their workday, and they were not harmed by management's actions. Management contended that the union in this case offered no alternative as to why or as to what should have been done with the mail that needed to be delivered. 
Management cited in the hearing testimony of their witnesses, who was officer in charge at the time of the incident. The service maintained that several employees were out of work due to COVID-19 exposure and or school or daycare closures. According to management, the assigning of the CCAs were not planned and was due to the situation at hand, including carries out delivering mail in the dark. So we're going to fast forward and we're going to see what Arbitrator August determined in this grievance based on their positions. Again, I hate to keep reading, but then again, I want you to be able to hear what Arbitrator August and also have available to be able to print off and use in your case file. But this is what was said. However, it is the position of management in this case that they exercised their rights under Article 3.F to take the measures necessary to get the mail delivered in the Fayetteville during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Again, that's the only argument they're going to be able to come with. The contract strictly prohibits it. The only circumstance is because Article 3.F of an emergency situation, meaning an unforeseen circumstance. That's the only argument they have, and that's the snake head that we have to cut off. Additionally, management argued that if anyone should have issue with this, uh, the use of CCAs to perform rural carry craft, it should be the NRLCA, not the NALC. I touched on that earlier. Management's going to say that. Well, that's a clerk grievance, or that's a, a rule carrier grievance, or that's a custodian. No, it, it, in this particular case, they're prohibited from being there. Management further argued that it was the conditions caused by the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic which led to them to use CCAs to perform rural duties, and their actions were not willful or deliberate. The service held that although the service assigned CCAs contrary to the provisions of Article 7.2, they did so under the authority of Article 3.F, and there was no harm caused to any carrier. In this situation, there wasn't even harm to any carrier on the city letter carrier's side. But you may have situations, and I know a good friend of mine has a situation where city letter carriers are being harmed because of a result of constantly assigning CCAs to perform rural carrier work. So that trickle-down effect has now taken place in my friend's installation, but in this particular case, it was just the mere assigning the CCA across craft lines. Management asserted that the union in this case is requesting a remedy that can only be determined to be punitive. Arbitrator August states, The clear language of the agreement established the utilizing the CCAs for rural carrier craft was a violation of the collective bargain agreement. While Article 7.2 limits cross-craft assignments to career employees, it also excludes assignments in the rural carrier craft. Additionally, the CCA questions and answers listed under Article 7.1.C.1 states that CCAs may not hold dual appointments, which is described in Section 234.23 of the EL312 Handbook as an appointment to more than one non-career position in the Postal Service. This is known as dual appointment. Management acknowledged that the use of CCAs in the rural craft is not allowed under Article 7, but defended their position to do so under their rights garnered under Article 3.F. Based on the language of Article 3.F, management may take whatever actions they deem necessary in emergency situations. However, the union argued that while initially COVID-19 may have required emergency action, that emergency does not continue. 
The parties do not dispute that the time period of the incident in this case and the incidents contained in the grievances held in abeyance awaiting the decision in this case all occurred during the pandemic. Thus, the question is whether or not the COVID-19 pandemic was and still is considered an emergency under the provisions of Article 3.F. The key to the answer lies within the same article. As the parties qualified the service's right to take action when the situation, in quotation, she says, is not expected to be of reoccurring nature, the very nature of the pandemic assures us that the situation which the Postal Service is facing, a lack of staffing for the number of routes which require coverage each day based on an employee's continued exposure to the virus, will be of reoccurring nature for the foreseeable future. This is the world we're living. This is the game that we're playing. COVID is here. COVID is not going anywhere. It's been happening for over two years now. So it is foreseeable. We we cannot get away from it is no longer just an emergency that that started yesterday. This is what we've been dealing with for over two years now. So management should be equipped and staffing properly, hiring properly to be able to combat these staffing issues. Arbitrator August shot that down. While the position management finds itself in each day was not of their own making, the resolution can only be found at the negotiation table. The emergency was established when the COVID-19 virus was first identified in this country and spread rapidly throughout the states. However, the issue of absenteeism is one that every office in the nation is facing at this time and clearly calls for additional negotiations of MOUs which can help resolve staffing issues with available resources. In the face of numerous hiring issues where people are scared of the exposure to COVID-19, the need to utilize personnel in other, off, uh, in other areas of the post office, maybe other crafts, including the rural craft, just to get the mail delivered, is reoccurring situation in Fayetteville, North Carolina. It's subject to the terms of the national agreement, in this case, a violation of Article 7.2. Arbitrator August goes on to cite two other regional arbitrators, Arbitrator Britain and Arbitrator, I can't even pretend to announce it, pronounce this name, Similaker, Similaker? Y'all have fun with that. I appreciate y'all's uh, commentary on that. But anyhow, she goes on to cite these two arbitrators and states, In the instant case, there is no dispute that the issue of utilizing CCAs to perform rural craft duties has been an ongoing since the start of the pandemic. Now more than a year in, the union alleged the violations continue. As both arbitrators above, in these cases, management, as in this case, management, argue that they made conscientious efforts to get the mail delivered and get additional staff hired. However, as in the cited cases, those efforts did not change the fact that using these carriers, in this case CCAs, to perform rural craft work was a violation of the national agreement between the USPS and the NALC. In both cases, the arbitrators found that a remedy was required to cure the violations, and I agree. Regarding that remedy, management alleged the union's requested remedy was punitive because the affected employees were not harmed. Here's where, we talk, here's where we're going to get our uh, remedy arguments. However, given the current situation in this pandemic, the CCA's fixed exposure in new surroundings which were not normally assigned. The union alleged that the CCAs were mandated to complete the duties and this was not a voluntary situation. By their own admission, management contended that many of the rural craft employees quit because of their concern about the virus. 
This arbitrator is certain many of the CCAs had the same concern. Thus, the harm comes when the service denied them the right not to cross crafts as provided by the national agreement. In their remedy request, the union asked that management be ordered to cease and desist, violating Article 7, and requested that the affected CCAs be compensated with an additional 100% at the straight time rate or allow them to receive compensatory time off. I always recommend when we're asking for uh, when we go to remedy, that we give that arbitrator that latitude, that we don't just stick with one remedy, that we only want administrative leave or you know compensatory time off. Allow that arbitrator to make that decision. Okay, we would like them to be paid at the base straight time for the amount of hours they worked in said craft, or be given compensatory time off for the said hours that they worked in that other craft. Let that arbitrator, let that B team, that's why usually in our formal A contentions and our requested remedy, we always put whatever step B team or arbitrator deems appropriate. Give them that opportunity to, to make that decision instead of just holding down to one requested remedy like they did here. Obviously, allowing compensatory time off in a period during which the Postal Service already has numerous staffing challenges is not a feasible remedy. It only could cause more grievances. The appropriate remedy in this case would be an order to cease and desist and the payment of an additional 100% at the straight time rate to the affected CCAs. This award is ordered to uh, is ordered to remedy the violation of the CCA's rights bargained for by the NALC. That's beautiful. That is beautiful because that's exactly what has been uh, harmed here. The violation and the erosion of our contractual bargain agreements. If we don't ask for it, we can't get it. We may only get a cease and desist. I'm going to ask for the cease and desist and 100% of their base straight pay or the compensatory time off. That's where I'm starting. They may come down to 50%. They may say, well, they already were paid to perform the duties. You know, We'll give them an additional. If they just give you a cease and desist, build on it. You know, whatever you can get at the formal A table, the informal A table, that's on you. But when it goes up and the B team or a pre-arbitration agreement or an arbitration award comes down, use that foundation. We're going to build upon it because next time it'll be a, a violation of Article 15 and Postal Service Policy Letter M-01517 because they're not abiding by grievance resolutions. So we've indicated here management's argument. Article 3.F, she completely shot down that the COVID-19 pandemic was an unforeseen circumstance. It is the world we live in. Sick calls are the world we live in. Heavy mail volume is the company we work for. Those situations do not rise to the level of an unforeseen circumstance. So when management and you meet with them say, well, it was an emergency, what was it? And prove it to me. And at the end of the day, the contract says they are excluded. They cannot be crossing craft lines. Again, like I told y'all earlier, I'm not an expert at this. Uh, this is a grievance packet that you can put together, that information that you can request to help support the uh, acknowledgement that the individual was assigned in the improper craft. Also, undisputed facts could be utilized here, and that would limit the argument down to whether or not it was an Article 3F's um, uh, situation. But again, if this can help anybody, um, more than happy to come do it. And I appreciate, you know, the each individual's response back at National. Um, it was a pleasure to see y'all. It was a pleasure to get to speak to y'all. Corey wants me to 
go over a work hour workload. Uh, I'm struggling. And hold on one second. Let me grab it because I can't see the damn thing. Okay, Corey asked me to go over a work hour workload report, and he actually had one that was sent to him. Um, this individual was asking for some guidance on a work hour workload report. Uh, I'm going to do my best. I, I have my cell phone flashlight, and I'm looking at it right now, and I'm going to try my best. And so forgive me if it doesn't end up being the best, but I'm going to try my best to go over it for you. Um, and if I can't do a good enough job this time, next time I come back, eight, nine months later, I'll be back before then. But um, I'll bring a better one. But this work hour workload report, and there's different ways you can request a work hour workload report. You can do it by a specific date. You can do it by a date range. You can do it by route, or you can do it by carrier, or you can do it by all routes to get your, your station. The one I'm looking at is for all routes. And it was on one specific date. And when you're looking at a work hour workload, you're going to see uh, sections. You're going to have office time. You're going to have your street time. You're going to have your total time. And then you're going to see volumes. And these volumes, remember, these are volumes that management inputted into DOIS that created a work hour workload report. These are not uh, piece counts. You know, if there was a piece count done in 1838C, then they would have that information to be able to utilize to input into DOIS. But these are linear measurements. And we talked about linear measurements and the conversion factors that when they input those linear measurements, it converts it to piece count. But when you're looking across there, you'll, you'll have your route. And you'll have the first column is ACTAM, actual AM. That is your actual office time that comes from tax. So when you begin your tour and you come in and you're on function in my office, 722, that's your office function, until I make a move to street time, it's going to be calculating my office time and upload that information into DOIS. Then you're going to have AM assistance. That means if somebody performed... Um, auxiliary assistance, AM office assistance, where they cased mail on your route. And if they were properly identified, and that's one of the things that you want to look for under work hour workload reports, if management provided you some auxiliary assistance by casing some of your mail, I would expect to see a reflection of that the next day on the work hour workload report. So if I know an individual cased one hour on my assignment, and the next day I check the work hour workload report and I don't see any AM assistance, I'm going to take notion with that because management didn't accurately record that. They didn't make the clock ring edits to show if the individual didn't clock to my route. But I'm going to want to see that. Then you're going to have the projected AM. Uh, when it comes to projections, I really don't pay much attention to them you know, because that's DOI's projections. But you're going to have a, a projected AM and then you're going to have an AM variance. That's going to be the difference in between the projected AM from DOIS and the actual AM from your clock rings. So if you had a projected hour and 30 minutes of office time, but yet you only did an hour and 15 minutes office time, you're going to see an AM variance of minus 15 minutes because you beat the projected AM time, and just vice versa, if you took an hour and 45 minutes, you're going to see just 
Next, you're going to see an actual PM. This is from the moment you move back from the street delivery and you move back to an office function to make a proper disposition of all your accumulated mail that day. You're going to see an actual PM. If you don't see any PM, one, did you make the proper clock ring? Two, if you did make the proper clock ring, did management not upload that into, ta- or in, into DOIS for the work hour workload report? So when I get back, I have PM office duties. I have undeliverable mail that I must make a proper disposition when I return, meaning I got to go through that mail and distinguish what proper case it goes to. Also, I return my whole mail to my case, my empty equipment, my the mail that I picked up through the course of the day, the outgoing mail. I finish my PM office duties up, including my wash-up time because I have wash-up time when I come back from doing this hot, sweaty, dirty-ass job to be able to wash off from the day, and management's required to pay me for that, I should see PM duties, okay? So that'll be actual PM. Then you'll see PM assistance. This will be uh, reflective if you came back and an individual was casing on your route for the next day. You would have PM office assistance. Um, also, if an individual was ended up for whatever reason, management needed you to clock out and then they dispositioned your mail, but I would frown upon that. I should finish my duties. Projected PM, you'll always see five minutes. You know why? Because Doyce projects every route to have only five minutes of built-in PM office time. They already pretty much project on a day-to-day basis that when you return from your route that you're able to disposition all your mail, your wash-up time, put everything up, and be out of the building within five minutes. So that's always going to be their projected PM office time. We've had to grieve that. We've had to grieve the five-minute office PM office time. If they're trying to hold you to that standard of only five minutes in the PM office time, you should file a grievance because they're setting a standard by utilizing DOIs to create a standard of five minutes only. And then you'll have your PM variance, the difference between the projected five minutes and what you actually used, either here or there. Then you'll see a column of OEI. I know what OEI means. I don't know what OEI is for. But OEI stands for Office Efficiency Index. That must be something way above my pay grade and something for them to utilize. But nevertheless, I'm sure there's somebody out there that knows it. I can't wait to hear the response. I'll I'll be sure to tell Corey to let me know when somebody responds to what is the benefit of OEI and how it pertains to a city letter carrier. Then you move to street time. And this is the column, really, that I would like to pay a, uh, get individuals to pay a lot of attention to just because of auxiliary assistance. You know, when we're wanting to make sure that our, our routes are being proper, uh, that information is being properly recorded into DOIS, we want to be, a see, be able to see a pure reflection of all the information. It's going to start out with your actual street, what you actually did on the street. Once you move to 721, you start grabbing your DPS and you're ready to head out that door and you perform your street duties all the way until you clock back in to 722 or whatever office function you use. 722 is my function. Until I move back in, that is my actual street time. Street assistance, okay? This is where you're going to want to keep uh, keep a record of this. If you're a non-ODL letter carrier... And you put in, let's say, for an hour and a half. And management says, okay, fine. Give me that hour and a half. They approve your 3996 for an hour and a half of auxiliary assistance. So you have your record 
because you get a copy of your 3996 right. We always request that copy. Management's required to give us a copy, a duplicate. And then the next day, you notice the work hour workload report does not have any street assistance. Essentially, what management is showing you and what the work hour workload report is showing that your route was just eight hours yesterday. It doesn't show any street assistance. And that could be a grievance of M document 1664. Because the first paragraph that everybody is real familiar with, that Doyce doesn't set a, a standard for the approval or disapproval of overtime, that second paragraph, I don't have the M document in front of me, but the second paragraph is also a different segue that management is responsible for accurately recording the information into Doyce. Meaning that if management is not inputting information into DOIS that pertains to my assignment, then I'm going to grieve that under that second paragraph because management is obligated to do so. Okay? So if management is not showing any street assistance and you have a 3996 showing that you received an hour and a half of auxiliary assistance, I, as a steward, am going to want to start seeing clock rings. I'm going to want to see a schedule where that individual was appointed, that uh, takeoff, and then I'm going to question the individuals. I'm going to get to the bottom of it is what I'm going to start doing. But I need to see and know who the individual was that performed that work and then why management did not put it here under street assistance. Then you have projected street. That is what management is projecting. Usually, Doyce is going to utilize the same street projection every single day, regardless of what your assignment has been distributed. It's going to take the last either um, route inspection data, your last route uh, street time, and it's always going to be in the projected street, maybe your last thirty nine ninety nine. But nevertheless, from my experience in work hour workload reports, that number generally does not move. So whether you have the lightest day or whether you have the heaviest day, that street time is usually going to be the same in the projected street time. And then you're going to have the street time variance. And that's simply like in the office. If your street time, uh, your projected street time was either more or less than the actual, it will show the variance right there under street variance. Now we got another column that uh, I'd be lying if I said I knew what it meant or even cared, but I can't wait to hear because I know somebody's going to let me know what it is, and I appreciate you for it. Thank you. I do. But it's SEI, and it is the Street Efficiency Index. So I don't know if that's... <laughs> <laughs> telling me I'm not efficient, uh, whatever that is. But nevertheless, it's something that I, I'd be lying if I said it was ever brought up to me. But I do look forward to an individual that is uh, way more intelligent than me to let me know. Then we have total time. And we got the actual total. That's going to be the actual total of what your day was. And so uh, next you're going to have the projected total. And then you're just going to have that total variance. So if management projected you to have an eight-hour day, uh, but yet you actually took eight hours and 45 minutes, you're going to show that variance of 45 minutes and vice versa if you were under the eight hours. So you'll have that, that total there. The main thing, again, is anytime we have known assistance, we want to see a reflection of that assistance. If it's in the a.m. in our office time, we want to see that a.m. assistance. If we gave a portion of our route off as auxiliary assistance, we want to see that street assistance. Moving further, you'll see TEI, 
that's another uh, notation that I'm not sure what is, but I do know what it means. And it is the total efficiency index. So all these things are indicating my efficiency in some capacity. And then you'll see volumes. You know, and those are something that, you know, again, these are from linear measurements unless an actual 1838C was done. But it is something to maybe take a notion to, especially if you see a volume number that is way inconsistent with what you estimated your daily workload. Because like I said back in the Doyce episode, a carrier's responsibility today and always will be it is our job to estimate our daily workload, not management's. So if we're professionals, we know about what we're looking at. You understand if you have a certain amount of mail, how much you had. About the only number that I won't be able to verify or remotely even see is the DPS. Um, but I do know there's about four to 500 pieces of mail in a DPS tray. So if the work hour workload saying I had 2,000 pieces yesterday of DPS, I'm expecting somewhere from four to five trays, you know, condensed down to four or five trays of, of DPS um, but you're going to see total case uh, letters. You'll see total case flats. And again, those linear measurements are converted to numbers when they input those linear measurements into DOIS. Number of spurs in case flats. Uh, that's just simply you know what management come up with unless they did an actual piece count. And then you have your FSS, your sequence mail. Then the PP is your parcel post. Uh, how many packages you had. Okay. So down at the bottom, when, it, when this report is for all the routes, and so on this specific day, these same totals go across the bottom. And so when you have your, all your totals down there, you'll be able to see how your office performed on this given day. Uh, this particular station that I'm looking at had a projected total of 188 hours and 44 minutes but they used an actual total of 190 hours and 7 minutes, meaning there was an hour and 23 difference between what they actually did, what they were projected to do. It's also going to show you, again, the assistance in the morning. This particular day, they, they didn't show any AM assistance. So if I knew that there was individuals casing a route, uh, for an individual to come in and carry or performing auxiliary assistance in the office. Uh, most time auxiliary assistance is performed on the street, but if there was some form of AM assistance and I didn't see any reflecting on this report down at the bottom in the totals, I would take issue with that. Also that PM assistance, I mean the uh, street assistance. On this particular day, it's saying that there was 8 hours and 39 minutes worth of street assistance. So that means I should be able to look up throughout this report and see a reflection of that street assistance and also be able to validate that through 3996s and clock rings. So th that's kind of a breakdown of a work hour workload report. There's different ones. Like I said, you could get it just by the carrier. You could get it by the route. Uh, this is for all routes for one said date. Um you know, right now under these MOUs, we want to keep up with our work hour workload reports. And again, um, you know, we can grieve 1664. So if management's not inputting the data correctly into DOIS, that second paragraph of 1664 says they must do that. Okay, so if you see uh, discrepancies in your work hour workload report, investigate it and then grieve it under that M document 1664 that they didn't fulfill their obligation underneath that. So 
Um, again, in, in closing, guys, I uh, can't tell you again uh, how humbled I was and how great it was to see so many individuals uh, at the National Convention, to see the individuals uh, thank Corey. Uh, he does this because I, I can 100% say this with, with positive assurance. He, he does this because he genuinely cares about helping letter carriers helping representatives, strengthening our unit with knowledge, I mean our organized uh, craft with knowledge. Um, when I was appointed to the formal Step A representative in 2017, and, and that's my passion, that's my love, that's what I enjoy doing. Uh, my installation means so much to me, and just being able to make wrongs right for those people. He was responsible for helping me get there. And this is what I know about Corey is he'll help me do anything that I've ever need him to do. And he's about the business. He's about that action. And and that's where I've, you know, th- that's why we get along is because I'm the same way. You know, I was just raised that way. And so it's easy for me to uh, relate and uh, understand him. But I remember him telling me this, you know, one, I said I wasn't ready to do it. And he said I was. But he also said, two, he said, if any point in time, that you no longer become efficient at this or you, you're no longer being successful, I'll be the first one to come tell you that you need to get the hell out of it. And I respect that. And I respect somebody that's just going to be honest and call a spade a spade and keep it real with me. And so, anyways, I, I just know he has a heart for each of us and it's just for the better, uh, the betterment of our craft and for every individual. So I know he really appreciated the... Um, the individuals who reached out at national i appreciated him allowing me to be introduced and meet y'all as well it was very humbling experience to be at my first convention but not only to be a part of meeting you guys so i'm no expert i have no idea uh what he'll ask me to do next but i'm gonna come do it and contrary to his uh stories and his his bullshit i i did not try to dodge coming out here nobody has uh told me i couldn't come out here nobody will ever tell me i can't come out here i do this for for help and encouragement and to better our better our organized group so i just had some things come up with vacation my little buddy um, baseball leadership again thank y'all la 25 y'all got my heart uh, i love each and every one of you i'm not gonna prolong this anymore i'll get Corey to bookmark these things and earmark it and again uh, it's been a true blessing. It's a true honor, and I'm privileged and honored to be able to do this. I can't wait till the next time. Y'all have a good one. All right. That's my man. Came in here and did it. <laughs> he cleaning some stuff up, wasn't he? he? Ain't nobody ever told that boy he can't come in here and do anything. So <laughs> I was just messing with him. But back to educating this week. That's what this is all about. A lot of uh, comments about the work I work, little port. So I appreciate him going over that. A lot of uh, CCAs doing rule carrier work, so I wanted him to go over that, and uh, he did a great job. And uh, so I appreciate him coming back and and, uh, giving me a good episode. I'll keep doing that. Uh, As topics come up, I see hot topics on Facebook and things like that. Uh, I'll address them. And then, so I I think that'll be a pretty good idea. Again, next week, we're going to get back into the T-Wrap. Uh, it's on us September 1st. It starts back. So I'm going to have uh, two or three episodes, uh, continue with that. And uh, we'll get, uh, get everything ready for, for that to come back into effect. So hope you'll have a fantastic week. Take care of yourselves out there. 
College football starts next Saturday. Everything is right with the world again. Okay? We got some college football. It's on starting Saturday. So I'll talk to y'all next Sunday. We'll get us some T-Rap, all right? Talk to y'all later.